Uh, my name's Saul Ganzu. I'm a PhD student at King's College London in the uh, Geography Department, actually. Um, so I should uh, kind of caveat my talk by saying it's been a, been a while since I've been amongst kind of widely participation education audience, but nonetheless. Um, I'm going to talk today about London-centric widening participation and try and kind of unpack some of the um, big policy debates, but also and kind of academic debates as well, that have to do with the specificity of London's educational system, um, the recent improvements in recent years, and also specifically look at kind of how the third sector widening participation organisations in London are working, uh, and and kind of try and problematise what that might mean as they try and expand outwards to London. So um, I'm kind of going to, one of the things I want to talk about is the, the London effect and try and give a kind of widening participation angle to doing this. So there's been a whole set of reports and research since about 2012 about the success of London schools, both at GCSE and on entry to HE to an extent. And there's been some kind of political and media tub thumping about uh, London's excellence, and I should say also I'm from Sheffield, uh, and I now live in London, and it kind of, it annoys me sometimes reading the Evening Standard uh, on the way on the way Just home. Sometimes. Just, Just sometimes. Just <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> All the time. But, um, anyway, kind of in contrast to this rhetoric and discourse about London's excellence, is the kind of, you know, Gove describing East Schools in East Durham as smelling of defeatism in 2014. Um, <coughs> And something which is a personal bugbear of mine is that this kind of London effect literature, although it's kind of excellent, and I'll say a bit more about that in a second, um, it says nothing about inequalities between schools in London in terms of HE access, um, and it doesn't really kind of situate that um, this improvement in attainment um, and how that affects HE inequality, access inequalities and access to HE in the kind of the relationship between London and the rest of the UK as a whole. Um, and coinciding with this kind of period of improvement in the attainment of London schools, there's been a kind of dramatic expansion of um, NGOs, basically, or third sector charities, providing WP activities. I'm sure some of you will have come across them, people like Inter University, the Social Mobility Foundation, um, debate makers, a whole set of them. And these organisations are kind of beginning to extend beyond the capital. Uh, and there are kind of political implications about this, which I want to kind of unpack in this talk. What's their model? Where does their money come from? Um, and there are kind of practical difficulties of expanding beyond London. There's a kind of London vision to some of this, which um, came up when I interviewed some of the people that had been involved with um, moving these organisations out of the capital. Um, so, a bit of an overview. I'm going to talk about the London effect in the first part of the presentation, and try and unpack that a bit and talk about kind of structural inequalities and access to HE and Sheffield and London differences. So this, uh, my actual PhD is about inequalities between different post-16 institutions um, and how, the, in, in terms of access to higher education, and how those really fit into kind of regional and local um, historical inequalities in class, particularly, um, and I want to, I'm going to kind of draw on that data in the first part of the talk. The second part of the talk, then, I'm going to look at this kind of machinery, widening participation, these third sector organisations, and look at the kind of politics behind that. Uh, and in the third part, I'm going to draw on some um, interviews with uh, HE advisors and WP coordinators in, in, who are now based in London, 
some of whom either went from London out into provincial cities, in particular Nottingham, to kind of try and grow some of these third sector organisations, and some, other, some of the others went in the opposite direction and actually went from um, the northwest to London. Um, and in that particular case, uh, that individual had worked in um, sixth form colleges doing it kind of HE and aspirations work there. And so that'll be the kind of third part of the, the presentation. This, this first part is going to draw on data from the MPD. It's linked data taking you right to entry, entry to higher education. Um, and it's for the 2011-12, um, 2010-11-11-12 cohort. So I've calculated it using the youth participation rate for that, for that cohort of students. So to get into this first section, um, so just to kind of recap, you might be familiar with this and you might not, there's been a kind of series of really interesting studies looking at this high performance of free school meal students at GCSE in London and uh, compared to free school meal students elsewhere. Uh, Chris Cook kind of kicked it off in 2012. There's been a, there's a really good, I think, probably one of the best reports on it is by the IFS. I think it's Greaves and Miller um, in 2014. And then also Simon Burgess. Um, and different reports have seen kind of different course, causes. Um, the success of the kind of London challenge policy over the, over the 2000, over the noughties, and the high proportion of BME families in London has generally been seen as central to, to why we've seen this effect. And there is some related evidence um, look, say, looking at high, higher education participation, which tends to be, as the sort of trust kind of shows, to higher across the board in, in London um, and in terms of, uh, particularly in terms of accessing elite institutions. And it's periodically used by politicians or kind of Ofsted inspectors, I think we last week, to attack schools in the north. Um, yeah, what was it, Chief Inspector of Ofsted last week talking about the powerhouse being in trouble because of low performance in the northwest. Um, what's not at all on the political or really kind of the research radar that's looked at this London effect literature is the kind of uh, inequalities between schools within London um, or the kind of continuing concentration of institutions which serve as kind of de facto feeder schools for the HEI, so I'm talking about primarily the private sector but not exclusively. Uh, and I think these are, for me, the other, other London effects. And uh, I just want to throw a little bit of light on them. Um, so I mapped out, and I hope you probably won't be able to see very well, what I've done is just using the DFE destinations data this time, um, I just mapped out the percentage, of, um, the percentage of students at each school going on to Oxbridge. Um, and it's kind of well known that the private sector is overrepresented at Oxbridge. Uh, what's less well known is that the kind of is what this kind of geography of access to Oxbridge looks like. So I've just mapped it out here, and this is for private schools. And what you can kind of see, but it's not really clear, is that there is a kind of clustering on the southeast of England, and this is the these are the historic um, you know, bastions of um, private sector social reproduction, really. Um, these are the elite schools of the southeast, but um, this, this I should say is only this. I've only, you, I've only mapped here the, the. This is kind of another caveat, a data caveat again. I've only mapped the schools that are sending one percent or over to Oxbridge, which is obviously a problem with <coughs> the DFE data that they suppress anything below that. Um, anyway, and this is just chance breaks. Um, 
If you, what happens as you go up that classification is that the schools that send really high proportions of students to Oxbridge get more and more focused on the southeast. This is in the private sector now. Um, and you can kind of see this, I've just pulled up the last two bins, and you, what you can see is that they're overwhelmingly concentrated on the southeast. You've got, um, on, this, on this second to last bin size, you've got um, a school of Cambridge, I forget which school that is down there. Um, and, and this is kind of, you've got Eton out here, and in the, mid, in the final bin size, you've got one of the Oxford private schools, I think it's Oxford, goes high, and also um, Westminster in London, or, or possibly St Paul's, possibly both. Um, I think what was, what was interesting to me, to kind of, and what I'm really interested, I think, with looking at this data, is thinking in slightly different ways about old forms of inequality. And what you see, essentially, is that Oxbridge recruits in two ways, in a way which is kind of self-evident, but I think it's interesting, worth thinking about, is that there, there is, recruitment happens in two ways for, to the educational elite. They cream off over, over large areas in the state sector, and I haven't got, put these maps up for the state sector, um, but, I, but I can do, and I can send them if people are interested. They cream off over, over large areas, so you have a large number of schools in, in pri private schools, also the selectives, and the non-selective state sector, that will send a handful of students to Oxbridge each year. And, you'll have a, and then you have these schools, um, which are effectively feeder schools to Oxbridge and to an extent to the Russell Group, or really within the Russell Group. It's, it's more seg segmented than that. But the problem for me with the, the, the focus of the London Effect literature and really the focus of education policy writ large is that the role of these private sector feeder schools and also to an extent the state sector feeder schools. Um, so I'm talking here particularly about the, the big grammars that are concentrated in London. They're never, it's not questioned that there was any, um, that there was any ability for policy to influence any of that, or indeed any need to. Um, though I hope that maybe now be changing. Um, and if you do this for the, for the grammar schools, you get a very similar pattern. Comprehensive schools is slightly different. But you still see, essentially, in the, the schools that are sending really the highest proportions of students, Oxbridge, they're all in the southeast of England. So this is a kind of other London effect, which, again, you don't really hear about, which is the where is the elite concentrated? Well, it's concentrated in the southeast, and this is why we see patterns like that. So to, to move on now to kind of um, inequalities within, um, within London schools, and also I kind of draw, bring in some Sheffield data as well, um, in, I, I've done a kind of used a, a technique that comes from social network analysis it's called uh, modula modularity analysis and it produces this diagram which will be explained and what it's actually looking for is, is clusters or communities of schools and universities so each node over here each dot is either a school or a university in London uh, a school in London and universities across the UK and what the, the technique is looking for, modularity analysis technique, is just looking for, on the, and the, it's just looking for um, nodes which are more densely tied together than you'd expect at random. And this produces statistically significant groups. Um, and the arrows, which you, can, you can't really see on this diagram, because there's so many of them, 
are the movements of students between schools and universities. And what you um, see with this method, hopefully I've got some, is that there are three, there are three groups in London, um, three kind of clusters of schools and universities. What you have in kind of class one, it's just a thing, is you have most of the state secondaries in, in, in London, further education, sit form colleges, and they're sending the, the majority of their students, is not particularly surprising, to post 92 or post 2000 universities so, and, and some of the arts and specialist universities. And in the middle, I think we've got in the middle, no, and then at the bottom here, what you've got is the university, the schools which really dominate access to the Russell Group and Oxbridge, obviously. And these are kind of what, what the Evening Standard kind of usefully calls the quote-unquote super states, which is, a, is actually quite a nice term for various reasons if you know what, because of what's happening on the ground in these areas. And um, if you take some of the schools in that, in that group are comps, highly selective um, grammar schools on the one hand, but also a kind of subset of comprehensives which you simply would not see in a Sheffield setting. So these are comprehensives where um, the house prices, in order to get into, I mean, people talk and, you know, I'm, we moved, when I was in, living in Sheffield, we moved from Pittsmore to Crooksmore, so, so we could get into King Edwards rather than, at the time, uh, Marshall, which, yeah, we could dwell on that, but we won't. But if you try to do the same thing in London, um, and if you, and I've looked at the, I've looked at the kind of uh, house price data for those catchment areas and compared that to median income. And what's really fascinating is that for these kind of highly select, de facto selective comprehensive schools that are de facto on the basis of catchment area, what's fascinating is that the income you need to access them in Sheffield, so if you're talking about moving into um, Tapton or King Edwards in the catchment area of that school, you're, you're, it's quite possible to afford that on the basis of a nurse. <coughs> In nurses or, or teachers, your average teachers and nurses' income, that you, you are in, in effect, you have access to that kind of middle class dominated set of comprehensives in Sheffield. But if you're on the same median, if you're on a median income for nurses or teachers in London, and you want to move into this kind of stay within the comprehensive sector, but still attend one of these schools, attend, attend a, a school which in a sense has an equivalent position locally. So, which is elite at a local level, you can't afford it. So, in, in 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 Sheffield, if you're a nurse or teacher, you wanted to buy a house, it would be about um, nine or ten times a single income to buy a house in the catchment of Tapton. If you wanted to do that in one of these uh, kind of comprehensive areas, Fortismere, Muswell Hill, if people know London, or uh, Camden School for Girls, so in Camden, you'd be talking, you'd be talking. You'd be talking about spending about um, 20 times the median income of a nurse or teacher. So there are kind of categorical differences between the way <coughs> the local housing market interacts with access to schooling, um, which is completely different in a London to a, to a Sheffield setting. Completely different. Um, and the other thing which is different, let's come back to this, is the, the type of inequalities that we find. Um, between institutions, um, between institute, between schools, in terms of access to HE. So in the middle, um, this black kind of black dot, black dots which you possibly can't see very well, 
Um, they're kind of what, what is called in this social network method. They're overlapping, so they sit between essentially these two communities. And it's a, it's a set of um, uh, sitcom colleges, uh, certain schools which kind of sit both ways, if you like, in a London setting. So they'll send substantial numbers into the post too, and also to Russell Group. Um, and then over there, I think on, in the far right hand corner, you've got homeless no, low degree nodes, which are essentially, you can think of them as being not statistically significant because schools with very small numbers of students. Um, yeah, won't go into that. Um, so, what about if we run the same analysis for Sheffield? I apologise, I haven't really labelled this, but I'm trying to look through it. Um, you can't see it at all, I'm fine. Um, what you can see over here is the, um, there's a bunch of green dots and a bunch of turquoise dots. And in the middle, you've got a few, a few purple ones and the red, the red ones, again, are homeless. The turquoise ones are, are the kind of usual Sheffield suspects. So, Siotaptons, Eking Edwards, and Girls High, Birkdale. Um, and then most of the Russell Group universities. Now, what's interesting in a, in a Sheffield setting, uh, and then on the kind of again, as you'd expect, lime green is uh, Sheffield College, uh, Longley Sixth Form, um, Parks and Springs, and then also most of the Russell Group, uh, most of the post two universities, although it's less, um, yeah, I'll say a bit about that in the middle, in, in a second. In the middle, you've got the University of Sheffield, um, All Saints, uh, and I think, yeah, Leeds Met. Now, what's really interesting in the, the Sheffield setting is that these institutions that are kind of locally elite, Tapton and in the state sector, they're sending much higher proportions of students into the post-92 sector than you would find in um, similar kind of locally elite London state comprehensives, much higher. Um, actually, the, the single largest destination for all schools and colleges across Sheffield, it, um, apart from Girls High and Birkdale, is Sheffield Hallam, which, which, is, which is quite interesting. I thought it was interesting. Uh, and then normally the second one is either at the University of Sheffield or sometimes Leeds Met, Manchester Met, probably depending on the year. I, I've not. I've only got one cohort to look at in my data. Um, and uh, yeah, so there's a kind of, there's something, there's something else going on here. And actually, if you unpack the data a bit more, it becomes more interesting because if you look at um, students at Tapton, the, there's actually a kind of a, a group of students, a group of actually, if you look at their SEC data, social classes one and two, the group of social classes from, one and two students that are going uh, from Bradfield to Tapton and then on into um, Hallam. So th th there is a kind of retelling. You won't, there almost needs to be a kind of retelling of the, the kind of standard rhetoric and discourse you hear about post 92, which is the, it's the working class universities. It's not simply not true. It's much more complicated than that. Um, anyway. Um, but, but, um, Um, right. So, uh, this is this next bit of analysis is a bit um, experimental. Um, so, again, thinking about how we might reframe this London effect, um, 
in terms of inequalities in HSE, HE destinations in London. So another method for kind of looking at inequalities between post-16 institutions in terms of access to HE is to look at kind of how diverse or concentrated a school's profile of HE destinations are. So this is um, using a method which comes from economics, which is called the Hirschman Index, and it's normally used to assess the amount of kind of competition between firms. Um, and a score closer to one indicates a monopoly situation, closer to zero indicates more competition between firms. Um, in terms of HE destinations, uh, for a school, if you ran this analysis um, according to university type, and again, there's problems, there's problems with, with this. This isn't a kind of perfect measure, it's just here as, a, as an experimental thing to have another way of thinking about inequality and access to HE. Um, a score closer to one might mean that a school or college sends nearly all of its students to, for example, Russell Group, Post 92, maybe Arts, depending on what classification of universities you use. Um, a score closer to zero would show a more balanced range of HE destinations. And the reason I kind of was interested in looking at this was because I, it, it provides maybe an alternative metric for thinking about inequalities and access to HE. Instead of kind of judging a school um, on raw HE participation or Russell Group or higher tariff institutions, instead you, you could examine instead how, how kind of well balanced, if you want to use that term, a school's destinations are. And it might be useful, obviously this would need a lot more work, but if you're aiming for a school system which was genuinely more egalitarian and equal, then you might be interested in, in using this kind of met, met, metric. Um, so, very, yeah, I caveat this data, it's just experimenting with it. Um, particularly because um, the results, as you might expect, are different depending on whether you include students that aren't going to university or students or only students that do. For this purpose, I've only included students that do. Um, and what you have for Sheffield, so the classification is based on Oxbridge, Russell Group, Post 92, Post 2000, Arts and Specialist Institutions. It's not really a perfect classification, um, but I'm just, just running with it at the moment. Um, small numbers can also be problematic but the, anyway the output is still quite interesting I think. what you, you get is um, in, in the Sheffield context they're kind of actually the most diverse, if you look only at students going on to university it's a bit different if you include not, students not going on to university um, Sheffield Park and Sheffield College come out the bottom so what you're actually seeing is that Sheffield College is, is, if you like, the comprehensive provider, well, which is what we all know, it's the comprehensive provider post-16 in Sheffield. Um, and, and that, for me, is kind of a salient political point, which is what, what do we want our education system to look like? Do we, do we want, a, do we want a, a system where you have this very strong uh, segmentation of students at 16? And um, in terms of attainment, but then also this leads on to the strength of kind of segmentation at um, 18 in terms of OT destinations between schools is is so strong nationally as well as locally that it, but you never this is never kind of talked about as being problematic or it's it's acknowledged tacitly but it's an intractable problem so we don't talk about it and I think perhaps some kind of metric like this would allows the further enlightenment. Anyway, in the Sheffield setting, um, the highest scores 
so that it kind of most concentrated is Birkdale with 0.33. So these these scores change if you put um, if you include students that aren't going to university. Um, Sheffield College becomes um, more concentrated because there's, there's a large block of students not going to university, so that affects the, the index. But they, it only goes up to about 0.44. So the actual inequality between highest and lowest score doesn't change that much. Um, so if we run the same analysis for London, though, I've only included the top 10. Again, this is not the students go to university. This is not this is not including students that don't go to university. But what you get is these HHI index scores, which are off the scale. So at the top here, you've got one of the these QE boys and Henrietta Barber, they're both grammar schools. They're sending almost all of their students, I think about 4%, 5% went on to the post 92 sector. Almost all of them are going to Russell Group. And, and they had um, they had about, I think, 35 students going on to Oxbridge. Not something the London Effect literature takes any interest in. Why? Um, and most of these are private sector schools. The two exceptions to this are George Green and Gladys and Elwood, um, both of whom have quite small sick forms. And, um, private sector. These two, these, so private sector, we've got Notting Hill, Channing, Putney High School, Lothal and Kalicha, Wimbledon, Wimbledon High School, not Latimer. So most of those are most of those are grammars. Actually, quite a few of these are girls' schools. Yeah, these two, these are the two kind of state school outliers, which are sending most of their students to into the local place like the sector. But as I said before, it's not a perfect measure. It needs a bit more. It needs quite a lot of work. Uh, because both George Greens and Gravis Aylward have quite small sick points. Um, but they kind of, if you, again, if you run this with um, including students that aren't going to university, you do, you do see some quite significant changes in some of the FE colleges suddenly again become more, um, <coughs> less, have less diverse HE destinations. But what you don't see change very much. Huey Boys stays at the top, Queen Elizabeth School Barnett stays at the top. And the gap between the gap in diversity between uh, these kind of elite, largely elite schools in London and uh, schools with kind of newer sick forms and the FE colleges is massive. It's hugely greater than what you'd see in Sheffield. But you know, that doesn't matter, does it? I mean London effect, everyone's doing great free school meals. And obviously it's not it's not as simple as that, but there's a kind of, I don't know, I'm just here to ask some questions, I suppose. So the other London effect, yeah. The problem with framing of London's success, entertainment, is that it kind of obscures the problems of inequality at the top, which are particularly polarised in London. Um, if we use other metrics to analyse AT participation, maybe, and this needs work, but maybe it could challenge both the kind of political rhetoric and the inequalities between institutions in terms of access to equity. Um, yeah, simply looking at the percentage of students from any particular school, which is what the DfE goes to, and there was crap. If um, kind of GCSE with the kind of changes to GCSE measures, it's quite likely that from a kind of school perspective, 
you'll see greater importance being put on HE destination measures. Um, but again, if we're, all we're looking at is kind of raw percentages of students that go on to uh, different university types, higher, low tariff, however you want to describe it, then you're going to overlook another way of looking at it. And you're already within that, obviously, narrowing and reframing what you want the education system to be, which is deeply problematic. But, but again, how, how, can we, um, how can we deal with that pragmatically from where we stand? But also, I think it's, it's a bit like fighting a fire. You know, we're, we're, we're all fighting the fire of education inequality, edu inequality more broadly. And, and the nearest thing you grab is probably, probably a watering can, right? And you need, everyone's got a watering can, but someone needs to go and get a hose. <laughs> you know, so you need, to, you need to have these kind of... We need, we're in the business of pragmatic short-term measures you know, and trying to be radical if, if you want to be all progressive within those. But there also needs to be space, and I think perhaps now more than ever with changes in the Labour Party, there, there is space for kind of more kind of, more kind of radical and progressive suggestions for how we go about doing policy. Anyway, to move on to the next section. Um, oh yeah, this, this bit at the bottom, I think, which is again quite salient, which is that we have an education system really which is designed with the needs of those at the top in mind. And if you look back historically, if you go back to um, there's a, a conference, uh, the, the conference in the North for education, the Education in the North conference, it's a kind of historic, I can't remember what the exact title of it. Anyway, if you go back to the 1910 conference in the North for education, which is still happening, um, you, there's a, a report from the conference which says, which is about a school teacher complaining that um, the definition of the curriculum, which is being determined by Oxford and Cambridge, is not relevant to the kind of new secondary schools that were opening in just before the just before the First World War. Um, and I think this is kind of intrinsic to understanding the nature of the education system for, for me anyway, is that there is this persistence in the definite, each time there's major education reform, and you can see this again if you look at the GCSEs, that they were designed by Keith Joseph, there's this famous quote by Keith Joseph that says, after he's been kind of knocked back from having grammar schools in Solihull, I think it is, the middle-class parents of Solihull vote to keep their comprehensives because they sitting there quite well. But he's not back from reintroducing selection there. 15 minutes. That's all right. Okay. He's not back, and he says, well, um, if we can't have selection on entry, we should have differentiation within the schools. And that kind of guides some of the principles in setting up the GCSE. Anyway, I better speed up. Uh, part two, kind of London's machinery of the third sector wide participation. Huge concentration of third sector organisations in Lund on London generally. It's quite hard to quantify this geographical divide, specifically for educational organisations, but very crudely, there's about seven, nearly just under 8,000 educational training themed charities in the UK, 7,300 of those based in London. How many of those are doing WP work? Obviously, it's difficult to get at, but just to give you some broad brush idea. So uh, the university, the kind of organisation I'm going to reference in particular, there's a lot more of them, but Inter-University, Social Mobility Foundation and DebateMate, these three in particular are now beginning to expand beyond the capital. Um, and they kind of offer various combinations of activities. 
mixture of mentoring, residential programs, homework groups, you probably are familiar with the kind of work that they do. Um, so kind of important from a kind of education perspective, and I'm thinking particularly the work of Stephen Ball here, who wrote a book about Global Inc. and um, looking at the kind of policy networks lying behind some of these organisations, is the kind of implicit politics of these organisations. And in a lot of cases, these organisations have very close links to funding coming out of the City of London, and they're also very good at getting money out of them. Inter University, which had a turnover of 2.1 million in 2013-14, it has major donations from financial institutions, so it's getting 240 grand at BlackRock, venture capitalist group, um, 200 grand from the private equity foundation, um, UBS giving big lump sums, and they most recently, they're also getting big donations out of charitable trusts, a million pounds out of the Queen's Trust, which is their biggest ever donation, that was this year, I think. Um, sometimes it's coming for specific bits of work, so J.P. Morgan Chase giving to the Social Mobility Foundation to fund their kind of residential programme and work experience as well. Um, so there's some kind of contradictory implications about this, and this comes from an interview with um, Dan, who's a wider participation coordinator at Sixth Form College in London, it's not real name. Um, Inter University ran a day at Deutsche Bank in the city for students at Northam Sixth Form College doing BTEC business. I went with them and the students loved it. It's very well organised. Inter University know how to get people engaged and excited. The problem with it was that no one at Deutsche Bank has done BTEC business. It just doesn't work that way. And <laughs> which the reality of kind of Deutsche Bank's recruitment is, is somewhat different, as you might expect, from your average the kind of average destination for students doing BTECs. Um, the kind of LSE, Cambridge Imperial, that's just looking at LinkedIn data, which is a fascinating source for HE data, which you might, might know, might not. Um, it's, and only, I think, I looked at the UCAS 2015, only 2.3% of acceptances to higher tariff universities held BTECs or some combination available in BTEC. So this really begs the question, whose interests are actually being served with this sort of activity? Um, yeah, the students are getting a great day out. And I'm not saying that this shouldn't happen or that people shouldn't engage with this. Um, I think we should be absolutely pragmatic and, and down the guy that I can now know quite well. He says, you know, this is great activities for, for, for students and young people. And it is good experience for them. But how meaningful is this if we're actually interested in, in making any serious social change? Um, and these contradictions aren't really li just limited to kind of conventional forms of HG. This is from another interview with another careers advisor from a different sixth form consortium in London. And he says, um, the other thing that we've not done in this country is there's never developed a good technical alternative to HG. And when I hear now governments bang on about higher apprenticeships, they're not there. Students come to me and say, David, where are the higher apprenticeships website? I couldn't find anything. It's crap. And I say, yeah, it is crap. <coughs> I couldn't, find it, I couldn't find anything on the website, and when I do get it to work, there's nothing there. The message they're getting is, this is, one, this is a wonderful option to higher education. No, it's not. There's a few marquee things, like KPMG, Deloitte, BT, that get 1,000 applicants for one place. I mean, this is rubbish, you know. And I get on my email, someone from Credit Suisse, who will say, oh, we've got this great in internship. Immediately, I get worried when I see the word internship. What's that? Is it money? What is it? Where does it lead? Now it saves you around 300 UCAS points, so what, they're, so what they're saying is, we don't want you to go to uni, and we want you to come to us, and then we might fund you to go part-time, but we still want you to have at least three Bs at A-level. 
I mean, they're having a laugh, aren't they? Okay, so th there is a kind of implicit political agenda to this kind of philanthropy-led education policy. And it comes partly, like most recently, in its most recent form, this kind of political agenda about social mobility, we saw in the coalition. It's also about this kind of post-crisis public pressure on banking and finance. Um, and they have a direct interest in supporting WP activities. It shows they're kind of serious about reducing inequality and access to the professions and their institutions in particular. The issue is really, I think, the, the, the bigger, the deeper political problem is that the framing that's going on here locks down any, any approach which says, well, there are, there, are, there are much bigger inequalities of race and class that are underpinning, and gender, depending on what you're looking at, that, that are underpinning all of this. And if, we're, if our focus is purely on getting more students' internships at uh, Deutsche Bank, I'm not saying we shouldn't, that shouldn't happen, but implicit to the, uh, the whole agenda, really, is that there's no real alternative here. And, and kind of, in a sense, more, more problematic is that, yeah, where am I going with that? Anyway, I'm going to move on because I've not got much time. There's, this is part of a kind of broader shift in education policy, and you can, like Stephen Ball's work on this, is really good to have a read of, Stephen Ball and Ball and Uniman. And the kind of academy reforms have opened up secondary education to the influence of these, the policy networks. And actually, what's really fascinating is... Um, if you look at, I don't know if anyone knows the governing board of Chapel Town Free School, um, look at some of the people in there, they're exactly these people, in fact. In fact, and, and there's, there is an overlap between, uh, that, so some of them are coming out, coming out, come out of the city or similar kind of consultancy organisations, um, and they're, they're engaged in this whole kind of body of education reform. And it's kind of a weakening, or at least a dilution, of direct university control over WP. You can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, so I'm going to speed up, because I want to get trying at the end. So leaving the capital, so there's some geographical problems with spreading this third sector model. Um, and if you're kind of perceptive, you might be able to see that um, Manchester seems to have floated. This comes from a report from debate mates, uh, annual report where they're talking about their regional expansion. Manchester seems to have floated over to the Yorkshire Dales. West Midlands has gravitated to Manchester. Bristol's gone up to somewhere near Shrewsbury. Uh, Nottingham's about right, but given, given Nottingham, Liverpool has become Sheffield. <laughs> and London's floated over to Reading. Um, I think they've probably just uh, produced a bad map, but I couldn't resist. Um, so there's national expansion going on. Uh, into university that has centres in Nottingham, uh, Bristol, Brighton, and most recently kind of Oxford, Brighton and Leeds. To my knowledge, the Knox family in Sheffield, you probably know better than me. Uh, debate Mate also began in London, kind of because of its model, which is about debating and getting university students to run debating activities for, for school students, it expanded much more quickly. Um, the Social Mobility Foundation, just in 2014, opened their second office in Manchester, they're also targeting schools across, across the north. This isn't always going according to plan. So into university, I'm going to focus on particular. They run kind of community centre style model. Actually, you know, a lot of the stuff they do is really great, and very clever kind of and good community organising model. <coughs> do activities for all ages, homework clubs, trips to universities, museums, mentoring. Um, the sign-up is usually about open day. 
in London, word of mouth is completely sufficient. Um, you get highly motivated, I think, minority intakes there with long waiting lists. In Nottingham, one of the first centres to open, open a predominantly white working class estate, and the experience was very different. So this is an interview with someone so what, who, who worked in the, that Nottingham centre. When we opened up the first one in Nottingham, the person who went up to open, to open it and the team who went up previously had been in London. So I just did everything like they did in London. They were like, whoa, what's happening? It was really a struggle. Is it the same team that's still there? No, they all left. Um, I went up there. I think part of the reason they left was because it was so difficult for them to make it successful. So what was going on in Nottingham? Again, this comes from the same interview. So... Um, they had big recruitment problems. Um, she said, we recruit from where we see the students in the schools or open days. And that's what we did in London, family open days. Um, this person had just gone back to London and opened up a new centre there. And in six or seven weeks, the centre had filled up, just by word of mouth. Um, and uh, in Nottingham, it took nearly two years, a year and a half, to get a properly good amount of people going. And what, what they were finding was that there'd be quite uh, a lot of dropout of students who just wouldn't turn up regularly. Um, so you can normally guarantee, she says, that 25 of the students will show up in London for, for an evening class. Um, in Nottingham, you might have 30 signed up and 11 would come. This was that kind of teething problem at the beginning. So to solve this, um, they, they put lots of measures in place for attention, family meetings, and texting people to remind them. So they said, they put loads of measures in place which we've never had in London because it wasn't necessary. And her last sentence was different. You have to kind of copy what the community want. Very different from setting up a centre in London, which, again, you might expect. <laughs> um, further limits. Um, bum, 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 bum. I'm going to skip this, I think. Um, so I'm going to move now to talk about uh, the experience of an HE advisor that had um, worked at, up in the northwest, based in a college, uh, and then come down to work for the um, Russell Group University in London, um, and uh, had also had, had links while he'd been while he'd been in the northwest with a London sixth form college, um, which kind of has a very similar intake to Longley. Um, so trendy declaration. So this is me, we've just talked. I think it's something interesting that you come across with the schools and colleges that I go into in London. It's a lot of my case studies in London. And you see at Northam Sixth Form College, which is this one that's similar to Longley, they've got this access to, you know, oh, an MP's coming in this week, and another one's coming in that week, and then, oh, we've got a trip to XY University, and then into university coming in, so on and so forth. And Paul says, I'm really glad you mentioned that, but I do think that's key. If you're, and I say this very carefully, in an ostensibly trendy area like Hackney, he kind of suffers from, quote, trendy deprivation, quote, unquote. He's saying this quite kind of critically. He's not trying to be demeaning. It's easier to supply your students with that kind of provision of people coming in. Um, and he's, he talks about having found it very difficult to simply replicate this kind of large number of extracurricular activities that you could get easily in Hackney, um, where there's plenty of willing lefties, which he also referred to, uh, that will go, go in and do their, do their bit, um, compared to um, in a kind of outer suburban bit of Greater Manchester. So problems of ge geographic transfer again. I'm going to kind of just pick out some big points. Um, 
he, he, he talks about realising very quickly that it just simply doesn't match to use, to use the Sixth Form College in London as a, a model for, for what he was trying to do in Manchester. And he said, I think the assumptions may be, oh, they're up there near Manchester and they've got a city. It's the same kind of thing. But it's not like that at all. The distance Hackney is from central London is probably comparable to what Ashton is from Manchester. There's a very considerable disconnect between like, the metropolis of Manchester, he's talking about, and the suburban outpost of which Thameside is one. And he says, he went on, and he was, he was from this area himself. He says, you're not only faced with the most basic socioeconomic advantage in London, but there's that whole kind of cultural bubble that I think the whole higher education system is kind of constructed on. They just don't have access to, and perhaps not by virtue of their parents' aspiration. I know for a fact that they want it. It certainly kind of doesn't exist in the area. Even the simplest things like closing libraries, no, no theatres, maybe one art gallery closed now, very little music scene. And these things don't sound very middle class, but they are. That's the preserve of middle class culture, and it doesn't really exist there. And I don't think he's, he wasn't meaning that in a kind of derogatory sense, but talking, talking in, 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 in a kind of honest way about how big structural regional inequalities, which, yes, institutions like that you find in the, in the city are, in effect, partly responsible for maintaining this massive regional inequality in, in arts funding, all that. These affect how you can run WP activities, which I guess is a kind of, again, an uh, obvious thing to say, but it's worth saying again because it's still so important. And he talked about now uh, going into um, working, in the, working in higher education uh, at, at Russell Group University in London. He says, I went to a round table at Hefke and when I just started the job. The problem is always scarcity and how efficiently you deploy resources. And I think the marketized structure of the WP system creates a self-referential bureaucracy which kind of mires universities in a situation where they provide things that satisfy the needs of this amorphous, centralized WP bureaucracy. I spent a year working at it, and I still can't get my head around it. Anyway, at this round table, I just said, you could save a lot of cash if you just allocated schools a certain amount of money and let them make requests for universities. It's more labour-intensive, but in terms of resources, it'd be far more useful. I left the sector with that feeling, he's stopped working in HE, that there's a lot of work and good intentions being done by universities. Is it as effective as it could be? I'm not so sure. Um, and they went on. And the other problem is, the University of Whatever offers X widening participation event. Well, it makes the assumption that we're talking about, at the start of this interview, that a student coming from a school in Liverpool or one in Manchester or Newcastle or London has the same requirements or will get the same benefits from that. And that's just not, it's not, it just isn't true. So these centralised things, I think, are almost a, 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 way, a way to kind of self-reflexively satisfy the demands of WP, rather than addressing these like, hyper-local WP or aspirational demands that students actually have. I suppose that's the point I'd make if you're thinking about differences between London and Greater Manchester. There's an assumption somewhere in WP that centralised provision can be provided for students regardless of where they're from. I'm not sure that works. Centralised provision. It, this is his interview. Hmm. Uh, I think he's he's talking <laughs> primarily about kind of hefty, but also about sometimes, and he's he's talking not he's talking not critically about the work that's done in WP university departments, but um, saying that sometimes there's centralised provision. But what, what do you mean by centralised provision? I don't. This is yeah. his interview. But it seems like it means less bespoke and less local. Yeah, I think it is, and I don't think I don't think he's saying that it's always like that. But I think I think his perspective, coming from a sixth form college and moving into the HE sector, was that 
having known the experience, the students on an individual level, it's a very different perspective of what their needs might be compared to. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think he's he's well. I know he's not being critical particularly. I'm going to have to wrap up. I think um, market perversities. This was again an interview with Dan. He talks about being offered um, a scheme from UCL where students need five A stars to come on the program, and he says, "Well, we've got 1,600 students there." And that's like three students who might meet that criteria of having five A stars at GCC. This is kind of what, what, what they're getting at. Um, and he talks about having sent an email to that, to that person, and she was defensive about it. And I think, I don't think that, again, this isn't a point of criticism, really. It's just saying that the way the system is set up leads us into these situations where we have these contradictions. Um, and he talks again about being in the seminar at UCL. And the head of outreach said, oh, um, we run a thing with students who have got B's and C's at GCSEs. Uh, and we worked with them for a few years, but having worked with 250 students, only one of them came into UCL, so we stopped doing it. And again, I mean, it's just, it's just, it's not a criticism of WP. It's a criticism of the conditions that people are working under. No, in, in all fairness, that should be a criticism of that, wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 All right, well, because you, you guys are anyway, right. you know, I, 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 my personal opinion. I think you stop doing, you don't know where those other 249 went. Yeah. So the argument is that because only one of them got into that particular institution, you should stop doing that work. It's problematic to me. Ah. Yeah, massively problematic. Sure. But the selective universities. Um, anyway, I, I should tie up. I should finish it up. I'm just kind of. I'm not. I don't work in WP, so I don't want to kind of put too many feet wrong, as it were. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, what to say? Kind of. I think just this kind of just sums up what I've been saying. That these kind of broader centralized political pressures on WP and also these kind of structural inequalities that we're all faced with limit the context within which we're working in to sum up very quickly um, conclusions um, I'll just come back to this final point that the geographical complexities and contradictions are, are really, it's about the broader pressures that are acting on schools and universities um, in a centralised and market oriented WP system but also in a but also in a kind of a society and, a, and an economy which is massively geographically unequal and this plays out in the, in the system um, when it comes to things like the London effect in ways which we just simply don't talk about. It's not considered problematic that there are these enormous inequalities between schools uh, in London. It's not considered problematic. And yes, there are still big inequalities in, between schools in Sheffield, but, are they just, but they're not the same. It's not the same extent because, because of these regional differences that you have in society. And I don't think we should underestimate the kind of possibilities of pros pragmatic but more radical alternatives within and beyond the current models um, and now go and have a look for the hose <laughs> 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 right, thanks